welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Today we're going to do something a little bit different and have a throwback to the hypothermia conference that we ran last winter. So we're going to listen to a talk from Dr. Martin McCullum. Martin is the deputy team leader of Lowman Mountain Rescue Team, and he's previously been the training officer for Scottish Mountain Rescue. He's been involved with Mountain Rescue in Scotland for over 20 years, and alongside this has worked as a field guide with the British Antarctic Survey, and alongside various organisations that have provided medical and safety cover in hostile environments. Martin's going to speak to us today about the management of stage one and stage two hypothermia. This talk will deal with the lower grades of hypothermia. Although less spoken of, it actually constitutes the majority of cases of hypothermia. I'd like to thank my fellow authors, Steve Jones, Eric Perry, Dave Strachan, Heather Sinclair and Ian Dawson, all of whom are very experienced in the pre-hospital environment, not only as mountain rescuers, but also bringing experience as basic responders and from various ambulance services. When we arrive at the casualty, we've often generated a lot of heat ourselves. Rucksacks, response bags, gases, 12-lead ECGs are not light and relating directly to someone who may have been there in that environment for a considerable period of time is difficult. As always, we should be looking at the scene as we approach, not only for our own safety, but also for clues around what we are about to deal with. In some cases, such as Jack here, we can get some very obvious clues simply through looking at them. Hypothermia is inherently tied in with temperature. It is, after all, defined as being a core temperature below 35 degrees centigrade. However, over the years, we have all spent lots of pounds, dollars, yen, Swedish kroner, Swiss francs and euros trying to find a way to get reliable core temperature measurements in the pre-hospital environment. Unfortunately, we still don't have one beyond esophageal probes, which, as we know, are very invasive. Dr. Martin Moussi discussed in detail last night. In 2003, an excellent tool was published by a group working within the Medical Commission of the International Alpine Rescue Commission, ICAR, where a scale was established relating signs and symptoms to core temperature. And, importantly, assessing different levels to these signs and symptoms. This has become known as the Swiss Staging Scale or Model, and work has continued refining this model to the present day. As I mentioned, we've not found a way to accurately measure core temperature in the pre-hospital environment beyond the invasive esophageal thermometer. Indeed, work in recent years has shown overlaps in core temperature between different levels that have been categorised by signs and symptoms. However, use of these remains our primary tool to try and assign a level of hypothermia to the casualties we're encountering. For this talk, we are dealing with hypothermia 1 and 2, i.e. we're dealing with those who are conscious. However, we need to carefully consider the level of consciousness to differentiate between these different levels. We've previously also used shivering or not shivering as an indicator. However, more recent work has shown that those in hypothermia 2 may be shivering, whereas previously accepted not shivering as a clear indicator of hypothermia 2. Hypothermia is, of course, linked 
in our minds with the mountains and cold snowy conditions. However, it need not only be in the high mountains. It could easily occur amongst the fields and hedgerows of any country location. The weather need not be snowy either. In our maritime climate in the UK, this is one where casualties can very easily become wet through, something that will remove any insulating properties of clothing. This can also apply in the urban environment. In recent years, we've also, as Dr Ishimaru illustrated in the first day of this conference, encountered hypothermia indoors. Cases amongst the old community are becoming more widely reported. When we arrive at the location of the casualty, we can also gather important information on the type of hypothermia. A casualty who has been outside in a cold environment will likely have a slow onset, as would one who has been indoors but has several days immobile in a cold environment. But if we consider someone who has had a rapid immersion, either accidental or deliberate, cold water, then their pathophysiology may differ. Also consider other factors. The swimmer looks ambulatory and so he's quite deliberate in his actions. If I tell you that this was the 6th of January in a Scottish loch, your index of suspicion would quite obviously be raised. Also watch out for the umbles and casualties. For example, is the casualty stumbling? Are they fumbling to do up clothing or put items of clothing on? Are they grumbling in general? Are they evening tumbling or falling over? When reaching a casualty, we as always gather information on their responsiveness. ARPU is universally used and when dealing with hypothermia, an important first sign to give us the level of hypothermia we are dealing with. In the past decade in the UK, the National Early Warning Score has been developed and is used primarily for monitoring acute illness severity in patients. In more recent years, it has been expanded to the pre-hospital environment with a responsiveness scale of ACVPU, C being the presence or onset of confusion, is perhaps something we could consider for hypothermic casualties. Shivering was previously a key differentiator between hypothermia 1 and 2. In recent years this is accepted as being less so, but still important for us to consider this along with the degree of confusion of the casualty. Establishing how wet the casualty's clothing is is a key factor. This may greatly modulate the amount of heat being drawn from their body in order to evaporate off the liquid and is essential in determining if clothing requires to be placed and in future packaging requirements they may have. DEFG, don't ever forget glucose. It may be that the casualty is not eaten or drunk for an extended period of time. Refueling them will be a critical part of our treatment strategy, but we need to be able to establish if they can easily take on food and drink. How distressed are they? Are they in fight or flight mode? Can we shelter them? How long have they been here? And of course, don't forget to get a sample history. This is essential. Mountain Rescue routinely uses group shelters, which are basically tents with no poles when they reach all casualties. These create a warm mini-environment in which to work and protect casualties and the rescuers. These very quickly warm up inside with even a couple of people. They do not rewarm the casualty, but help making them no colder. Group shelters are an item that not many pre-hospital responders routinely carry. Instead, consider the surroundings. Is there somewhere very close, such as a vehicle or building, you could safely move a casualty to? Are there even materials to hand where you could improvise a shelter of some sort? Insulating the casualty from the cold ground is an essential early step to stop further heat being drawn from the casualty. Foam mattresses are ideal for this and often come in a size the same as a supine casualty. However, you may need to improvise with available items you have, such as rucksacks, bags or a combination of insulating and foil blankets. 
Ideally, the insulating layer should be waterproof in order to stop any further dampening of the casualty's clothing. Hats and gloves are quick and effective insulating layers. Hats are important in reducing heat loss. US Army Field Manual used to claim that 40-45% to of body heat escaped from your head. However, more recent and rigorous studies have found that a person loses between 7-10% and 10 of their body heat through their head, head being about 7% of the body's surface. There is a BMJ paper on this from 2008 for those who are interested. If you're putting on a hand covering, on experience has shown that mitts are much easier to put on than gloves and are warmer. Putting on warm layers is a fairly obviously helpful and cold casualty gilets are often easier to put on than jackets. Over the years there's been a great deal of debate about removal of wet clothing. Removal can be problematic, it's really only possible in a sheltered environment Remember that with hypothermic casualties, we are trying to avoid unnecessary or rough movement due to the risk of inducing heart arrhythmias or worse. If we do choose to remove it, cutting off the wet layers will likely be required and we need to have available at least an equivalent amount of insulation to that we are removing. Fueling a hypothermic casualty is one of the most important treatments we can perform. The casualty obviously needs to be able to safely eat and drink but even the very act of eating will help generate some thermogenic energy. Start with some glucose for fast absorption. Our brains are quite fussy and don't really want a cheese sandwich, so something such as glucogel is ideal, though the casualty trying to eat it may not think so as it's not the tastiest of snacks. Back up the glucose with some complex carbs, homemade sandwiches, cereal bars, fruit such as apples and strawberries, and even milk work well though milk is often not readily available in outdoors, but maybe in the urban or indoor environments. Give liquids. Hot drinks do not raise the core temperature, but are very much appreciated an essential part of holistic care. Avoid diuretics of any sort and highly sugared drinks such as cola. The body has to dilute these highly sugared drinks before it can absorb them. Keep in mind that the body will work through the initial glucose very quickly, so ensure you plan to administer more after around 15 to 20 minutes. If you have a distressed casualty, absorption of fuel will be more difficult. Not only is it generally harder to get someone distressed to eat, but the digestive system will be suppressed. A key strategy must be reassurance to help calm them promote fuel absorption. Also, do not forget about the effect of dehydration. Losing a few percent of body weight due to dehydration can easily lead to confusion in a casualty. Generally, walking casualties is a preferred strategy as we can relatively quickly remove them from the hostile environment that's contributed to their present clinical condition. It also has the added benefit of generating heat from the very action of walking. Let's also not forget it means that it gets any rescuers out of harm's way. However, as we know hypothermia can lead to cardiac events, we have to be careful of any heart arrhythmias or worse that could be brought on. Generally, those in hypothermia 1 are okay to walk, but they may be unsteady on their feet, so we may have to support them whilst walking. Other adjuncts, such as walking poles, may help, as may microspikes if the ground is frozen. We will also have to refuel them, as they will quickly burn through the fuel we've given them to date. What about hypothermia 2? We're dealing with a higher level of cardiac sensitivity as we move down the Swiss scale. Cardiac arrest can become a real possibility, so we have to keep this in mind in how we handle our casualties. If we are in the urban environment, it may be that the evacuation distance is relatively short, so the difference in time and resource in evacuating someone horizontally in an appropriate carrying system may be relatively short when compared to the risk of walking. 
However, the mountain evacuations over long distances and difficult grounds are best done by helicopters. Fortunately in Scotland, the weather doesn't always cooperate and evacuation could involve tens of people over many hours if a stretch or evacuation is required. This leads to difficult decision making for clinicians. Historically, the casualty bags we used for casualty wrapping were really just large sleeping bags. These have lots of cold space and casualties packaged them frequently and complained of being cold with very little warming taking place. A great deal of work was carried out investigating wrapping systems to further prevent heat loss in casualties and, if possible, rewarm them. Interestingly, the core temperature of casualties in the studies did not differ greatly. The differentials between the systems generally being skin temperature, metabolic rate and casualty comfort. Being comparative studies, these more empirical metrics gave good indicators. In the studies, the use of multi-layer metallized plastic sheets, MPS, used as a vapour barrier generally gave the best results, even amongst those systems utilising different types of vapour barrier. In practice, utilising Hibbler's method of combining these vapour barriers with additional dry insulation from items such as the casualty bags previously mentioned is used. The metalised plastic sheets are tightly wrapped around the casualty who is still wearing their wet or damp clothing. Good closure at both feet and neck should be used. The feet package well within the wrapping sheet and with as good a seal as possible around the neck without restricting respiration. Items such as vacuum mattresses can still be used, especially if required in the case of spinal injuries. However, these can also be used as an additional insulative layer. Hot packs are commonly used. They should be placed around the torso, but not next to the skin. Their effect for rewarming is not great, however, as part of a holistic care package that provide a positive aid in casualty care. As mentioned previously, careful evacuation with the horizontal casualty is desired, but bear in mind that especially during extended evacuations, casualty monitoring will be required, so consider this in your packaging strategy. More specialised items such as the metalised plastic sheets are not always available, however the principle of creating a vapour barrier and insulating it can be applied using other materials. Simple single foil blankets are notoriously difficult to work with and generally too small to use to make an effective vapour barrier. However, by sandwiching them between two blankets you can create an effective partially insulated vapour barrier that's much easier to work with. For many years wilderness groups have also been taping foil blankets inside large polythene bags, typically using the orange polythene survival bags cut open. HEMS organisations are well known for using bubble wrap and even large polythene sheets can be used as a simple vapour barrier. Relatively recent additions have been the advent of large jackets made of layers of the metalised plastic sheets. These are very useful if you're walking casualties off, as not only do they create a vapour barrier, but their windproof nature is a great addition to stop any additional heat loss from the wind. The previously described idea of sandwiching a foil blanket between two blankets can also be used to create a wrap for those being walked. To summarise, hypothermia isn't limited to the wild mountain environment. It can readily occur in what would normally be classified as a relatively benign environment, or even indoors. With the difficulties in measuring core temperature pre-hospitally, treat casualties to signs and symptoms. Ensure they're sheltered and insulate as soon as practicable. Fuel them up with glucose, carbs and drinks. Package utilising the vapour barrier principle with insulation and evacuate as quickly as is safe. I'd once again like to thank my fellow authors for this presentation. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. 
Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Mm-hmm.